Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Internet Work. This is part two of our series on aortic stenosis called the tight valve. In our last episode, we talked about the physiology and the pathophysiology of aortic stenosis, as well as the natural history and clinical history of the disease. In this episode, we're going to talk about the physical exam, workup, and management of aortic stenosis. If you haven't listened to part one of the tight valve yet, we highly recommend that you do. It's full of lots of good stuff that will help you more comprehensively approach your patient with aortic stenosis. Today, your patient has aortic stenosis, and you are the doctor. Just to recap from part one of the tight valve, aortic stenosis is defined as a fixed obstruction at the level of the valve. Because of this, the left ventricle has to create a pressure gradient in order to get blood through the valve. The left ventricle eventually becomes hypertrophied, and patients can present with a number of symptoms, including angina, syncope, or presyncope, and heart failure. After you feel that you've taken a good history for the patient, you should now go on to examine your patient. What may you find on physical exam? Classic features on physical exam for aortic stenosis include a systolic ejection murmur, which is heard loudest at the right upper sternal border and radiates to the carotids. This finding is the most useful for ruling out aortic stenosis. The absence of a murmur radiating to the right carotid artery has a negative likelihood ratio of 0.05. Sometimes, the murmur may be heard loudest at the apex. This is called the Galavardin phenomenon and is due to the radiation of the high-frequency components of the aortic stenosis murmur to the apex. Because of the ramifications of severe aortic stenosis, it is important to know some of the physical exam findings associated with severe aortic stenosis. These physical findings are explained and extracted from JAMA's Does This Patient Have an Abnormal Systolic Murmur article? First, the more severe the stenosis, the later peaking the murmur will be. In fact, a mid-to-late peaking murmur has the highest positive likelihood ratio for severe aortic stenosis. Additionally, you may hear a soft S2 or no S2 at all. When you feel the carotid pulse, the pulse will be slow to rise and low in amplitude. This is also known as pulsus parvus atardus. You may also feel a systolic thrill or appreciate a brachial radial delay or carotid apical delay in pulse. As a result of the left ventricular hypertrophy, the apex will generally be non-displaced and sustained. You may also hear an S4 because of the non-compliant stiff ventricle, and an S3 or crackles in the lungs if the patient is in heart failure. Now, not every systolic murmur is aortic stenosis. On the differential for systolic murmur includes aortic sclerosis, a flow murmur, tricuspid regurgitation, mitral valve prolapse, and mitral regurgitation. Mitral regurgitation can be confused with the Galavardian phenomenon that we see in aortic stenosis. In order to differentiate between mitral regurgitation and aortic stenosis, you want to augment the afterload. Mitral regurgitation will get louder when you increase the afterload, such as when you ask patients to squeeze their left hand. Another way to differentiate is to wait for a premature ventricular complex, which causes a loud increase in an aortic stenosis murmur, but no change in mitral regurgitation. Another murmur that should be on your differential for systolic murmur is the one of hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, or HOCAM. The HOCAM murmur can also present with a similar crescendo systolic murmur and can be difficult to differentiate between aortic stenosis. Now in HOCAM, you have a subvalvular dynamic obstruction. And the way to differentiate between aortic stenosis and HOCAM is to augment the preload to the left ventricle. 
If you decrease the preload, say, by standing, less blood flows through the fixed obstruction of aortic stenosis, which makes the murmur quieter, and vice versa. If you increase the preload, say, by squatting, more blood will flow through the fixed obstruction of aortic stenosis, which creates a louder murmur. This is the opposite to hokum, which gets softer with more preload and louder with decreased preload. In addition to the symptoms of aortic stenosis that patients present with, there are a few other complications to be aware of. Aortic stenosis can be complicated by heart block, which can lead to syncope and warrant the need for an urgent pacemaker. Another rare complication is bleeding, in conjunction with angiodysplasia, usually in the gastrointestinal tract, and a form of acquired von Willebrand disease. This is referred to as Hades syndrome. Lastly, aortic stenosis can put patients at an increased risk of infective endocarditis and embolic events. In order to work up aortic stenosis, the most useful test you can order is an echocardiogram. An echocardiogram provides you with two useful pieces of information, which helps to classify disease severity. These two values are the mean gradient across the aortic valve and the estimate of the aortic valve area. We rely more so on the mean gradient because the significance of the valve area can depend on patient size. Mild aortic stenosis is defined as an aortic valve area of 1.5 to 2 centimeters square, or a mean gradient of less than 20 millimeters of mercury. Moderate aortic stenosis is defined as an aortic valve area of 1 to 1.5 centimeters square, or a mean gradient of 20 to 39 millimeters of mercury. The one to remember is severe aortic stenosis, which is defined as an aortic valve area of less than one centimeter square, with a mean gradient equal to more than 40 millimeters of mercury, or a peak velocity of greater than four meters per second. This is also important because usually symptoms do not appear until aortic stenosis is severe. On average, the valve area decreases by 0.1 centimeter square per year, and the mean gradient increases by seven millimeters of mercury per year particularly if there are other cardiac risk factors. An echocardiogram can also provide information regarding a patient's ejection fraction. This is important to note for two reasons. First, an impaired ejection fraction in the setting of aortic stenosis has a higher mortality rate. Furthermore, a poor ejection fraction can falsely lower the calculated gradient between the left ventricle and the aorta. This is what we call a low-flow, low-gradient state, and the mean pressure across the aortic valve may be underestimated. Furthermore, exercise testing may be useful to bring out symptoms in patients who may otherwise deny symptoms because they are not physically active enough to elicit any symptoms. Lastly, an ECG may show diffuse ST depression or strain pattern secondary to global ischemia. So, now you've seen your patient, you suspect aortic stenosis based on your history in a physical exam, an echocardiogram confirms the diagnosis. So what do you do to manage this patient? Well, really, it depends on the severity of the aortic stenosis and their symptoms. In general, we divide management into surveillance, preload, afterload, and rate control. With regards to surveillance, patients can be followed clinically according to their symptoms and with an echocardiogram. For patients with mild aortic stenosis, an echocardiogram is recommended every three to five years. For moderate aortic stenosis, every 1 to 2 years is recommended, and every 6 to 12 months is recommended for severe aortic stenosis. 
If a patient's status changes clinically, you may want to pursue repeat investigations sooner rather than later. It is important to remember that patients with aortic stenosis are preload dependent. Therefore, we should be cautious with prescribing patients diuretics and monitor their volume status closely. We want to avoid overdiuresis in these patients, even if they are presenting with symptoms of heart failure. Furthermore, patients with aortic stenosis should have their blood pressure carefully monitored and controlled. The preferred antihypertensive agent to use is an ACE inhibitor, given the benefits of these drugs on ventricular systolic and diastolic function. Lastly, patients with new-onset atrial fibrillation should be rapidly and aggressively managed. The goal is to restore normal sinus rhythm to maintain the atrial kick at the end of diastole, which adds about 30% to the end diastolic volume. In patients with chronic atrial fibrillation, the goal is to maintain a rate of less than 85 beats per minute to increase time in diastole. This is important in our patients with aortic stenosis as they need all the help they can get to maintain a good stroke volume. So, when do you refer your patient for a valve replacement? We know that after valve replacement, the survival is similar to aged matched controls, but there is about a 1-2% mortality associated with aortic valve replacement and about 1% morbidity per year driven by venous thromboembolic disease, bleeding, deterioration of prosthetic valve, and endocarditis. However, this risk can be much higher the older and the more medically complex the patient, especially if the patient also requires a coronary bypass. This needs to be weighed against the risk of sudden cardiac death of about 1% per year associated with severe aortic stenosis. So the important question to ask is, who should get their valve replaced, and how is this done? There are two ways that the aortic valve can be replaced, and patients will generally receive either a mechanical or bioprosthetic valve based on the patient's characteristics. Patients can undergo open-heart surgery, particularly if the patient also has coronary artery disease and requires a surgical bypass. Higher-risk patients may be offered transcatheter aortic valve implantation, or TAVI for short. TAVI approaches include the transfemoral, transapical, or much less commonly, transaortic approach. For a Medicine Minute today, we're going to talk about the Class 1 indications for an aortic valve replacement. There are also Class 2A and 2B indications available in the American Heart Association guidelines for your interest. Class 1 indications where the benefits clearly outweigh the risk in the majority of patients to have an aortic valve replacement include 1. Severe aortic stenosis with any classic symptoms of angina, syncope, or dyspnea, or symptoms brought on by exercise testing. 2. Patients with severe aortic stenosis without symptoms but who have left ventricular dysfunction as defined by an injection fraction of less than 50%. And 3. Patients who require concurrent cardiac surgery such as a cabbage, surgery of the aorta, or other valve replacement. Congratulations! You guys have now made a correct diagnosis of aortic stenosis, you know all about it, and you know exactly how to manage it. Thank you for listening to today's episode, part two of the tight valve on aortic stenosis. Today's episode is written by Dr. Nikita Malhotra, internal medicine resident, reviewed by Dr. Matthew Sibald, cardiologist, Dr. J.D. Schwalm, cardiologist, and Dr. John Neary, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is managed by Zara Morali and Leah Karyanopoulos and overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt-Vegas. Music by Lakshman Vizant the Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Internet Work, and please tune in again soon.